0: Hi everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to our discussion today with Ledette Tedesse from the European Center for Development Policy Management, I want to quickly answer a question that we're getting from listeners about our email newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day for subscribers. People tell us that they're thinking about subscribing, but really want to know what makes our newsletter worth it and different from the others. Now that's a good question, especially now in these difficult times. So most email newsletters provide links to stories, which of course can be useful, but that's not what we're doing. What we try and do instead is capture the essence of the day's conversation about all of the major China-Africa issues going on, from COVID-19 to debt relief to what's happening in Guangzhou. What are people saying, whether they're policymakers, scholars, activists, diplomats, students, and then we extract the key points from those discussions on Twitter, social media, videos, research papers, the news, you name it. And to do that, we pour through hundreds of source materials in French, Chinese, and English. We'd love for you to try it out. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. It's half off for students and teachers. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe.
1: The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Vich University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at AfricaChinaReporting.co.za. dot
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Sinica Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Cobus. Uh, this week was a milestone in China's corona diplomacy, and this is the coronavirus diplomacy that it's been engaging in for the past couple of months with a particular emphasis on Africa. Chinese President Xi Jinping addressed the World Health Assembly, which is the annual gathering of the World Health Organization, in a speech that really had a lot of emphasis on Africa. Let me just go through a couple of the key points that were featured in the speech, and they will really make up... Uh, a good chunk of our conversation today about China's coronavirus diplomacy. First, he promised $2 billion over two years to help with COVID-19 response, uh, particularly with economic and social development in developing countries, not specifically Africa, but it's understood that a lot of that money will go to Africa. He also uh, said that he's going to launch a new partnership for hospitals with 30 African hospitals, and he's going to accelerate the building of the new uh, Africa Center for Disease Control headquarters that China is going to pay for. Uh, He basically also said that if China produces a vaccine, it will make it available as a global public good. And then that has obviously a big impact in Africa because there is concern that should the vaccine be uh, created or when it eventually is, that Africa will be at the end of the line for receiving it, and China saying it will make it available to everyone. And then finally, he did make some reference to debt relief uh, as well, and that China will work with G20 members to implement what he called a debt service suspension initiative for the world's poorest countries. That, of course, is very topical these days in Africa. So that is kind of a big cherry on top for what the Chinese have been doing. Naturally, there's a lot of controversy over this because the United States and a lot of Western countries, Australia, some in in Europe as well, are very critical of what China has been doing in coronavirus diplomacy and also for the fact over this question of the origin of the COVID-19 outbreak. And that's all part of this as well. And then at the same time, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian last week He tweeted out some kind of, you know, a report card of what the Chinese have been doing in Africa. And he wrote, uh, China has sent five teams of experts to Africa, held 30 video conferences with the continent. Uh, Over 40 Chinese medical teams have shared their experience with 20,000 local medical workers in 400 training courses. Hashtag stand with Africa. The Chinese are getting better with their hashtags. Um, When we're talking about donations, though, coming from China it is very, very important to separate what is coming from the Chinese government and what is coming from the private sector. The Washington, D.C.-based consultancy and advisory, RWR Advisory, they have some excellent data that came out earlier this month on Chinese donation efforts around the world for COVID aid, not just in Africa, but it mirrors a lot of what we've been seeing in Africa, and this is something we track in our daily email newsletter. According to RWR, 50% of the donations are coming from companies, 21% are coming from philanthropies, and only 17% is actually coming from the government. That's a number that I think takes a lot of people by surprise. Kobus, okay, that is kind of where we are right now in the COVID-19 donation diplomacy agenda. It's a very controversial topic. A lot of Americans and Europeans are very upset because... They feel that they give a lot more money to African COVID-19 relief, but don't get the credit that the Chinese are getting for it. Talk to us a little bit about your thinking right now on China's coronavirus diplomacy in Africa.
2: Well, from an African perspective, you know, all of this help, I think, is very, very valuable. Um, And... uh I was heartened by she's mention of of uh, you know treating the vaccine as a global good because as we've seen with with many um, with many medications that's frequently not how health companies work. Um, and also you know name checking debt relief um, in this because China has been notoriously quiet about that issue for for a while. Um, so, so that is heartening. Um, at the same time, you know, looking at the the wider the wider controversy, I'm I'm a little dismayed at the, like countries like Australia and the US choosing this particular moment to pursue this particular controversy, um, particularly around like virus origins and and so on, simply because it's we're in the hot the white white hot center of of a global pandemic. Um, you know, and, and, from, from an African perspective, I would, I would have loved to see a lot more concerted working together on trying to actually work out a way of, of not wrecking all of these economies around the world. Um, you know, so, so yeah, that's roughly where I am. Like, you know, um, I, I can see, I can see a lot of, um, I can see the point of a lot of the criticisms of China, but from an African perspective, China is also doing a lot of stuff right. Um, and kind of walking that line, I think is, is the difficult issue. You may
0: be dismayed, Cobus, but we're in the white, hot, middle center of a U.S. presidential campaign. And that can't be discounted from the way and disconnected from a lot of this rhetoric that is coming out about China. So just something to kind of factor into all of this, that U.S. domestic politics also play a role on this. So we thought it would be a great opportunity to speak with somebody who's been following this. And Lydette Tedesse is a policy officer in the Security and Resilience Program at the European Center for Development Policy Management in Brussels. For those of you not familiar with the ECDPM, it's an independent think tank based in Brussels that focuses on development cooperation between the EU and developing countries in Africa, the Caribbean, uh, Pacific countries. Uh, She recently wrote a, a column for the ECDPM website, Testing the Relationship, China's Corona Diplomacy in Africa. Lydette Welcome. Very good morning to you in Brussels. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Thank you. Good morning, and um, thanks for having me.
0: It's wonderful to have you on the program. We've kind of talked in broad strokes about China's, what you call, corona diplomacy in Africa. And uh, in your article, you said that China's assistance to Africa stands out for two reasons. Uh, Number one, I'll just quickly kind of list them, that China's support to African countries is primarily in kind rather than in cash. Kobus mentioned that. Also the fact that China's support to Africa is appealing because it is based on China's demonstrated experience, quote unquote, in containing the virus in its own territory. Talk to us very quickly about those two points and why you think that that China's assistance is uh, appealing in Africa.
3: For the first one, um, as providing assistance in terms of uh, materials, PPE, um, as opposed to cash, particularly at the onset um, of the, the uh, pandemic, had uh, positive contributions because even developing developed countries were struggling to um, procure, um, in large scale, um, PPE and other medical equipment. So Um, And in Africa, you have a lot of countries that um, either cannot go into the market and then uh, provide competitive bidding because the global market for PPE and uh, medical equipment was really struggling and overwhelmed with um, the huge amounts of demand that were coming from um, different parts of the world. Um, And if they have the money, and even if they were to procure, not everyone could really coordinate the logistics um, of bringing it home and and distributing it. Um, So when you have um, China that decided to provide the material, it's really just one headache off. Um, And it also sort of demonstrates that China has... Um a good understanding of um African needs um and also a targeted way of addressing those so it's not just about throwing money it's about looking at what is actually needed is is money needed? Could they use the money to go into the market to procure but if the answer to that question is no then um and if these countries have uh, a PPE and medical equipment needs, how can we actually, you know, deliver to their doorsteps? So in a way, I think um, they have done their homework and assessing what exactly the problem is and then um, uh, trying to respond to it. Um, and then the second aspect is um, i mean it's it 's a bit of a controversial um, thing, but rather uh, but still i think an observation um, that in a lot of African countries, um, as you said earlier a lot, in a lot of African countries, um, there is a great deal of familiarity with um, assistance that comes from uh, Western countries, so the traditional partners these are uh, from the United States or um, countries in Europe or from the European Union itself um and i think there is this perception that um oftentimes these these um support or assistance or advisory were sort of extended um from a point of presumed expertise and not necessarily lived expertise and this doesn't have to necessarily be about um, how the West was supporting Africa in terms of the health um, sector. But also, if you look at development, poverty reduction, um, a lot of these models that are used in Africa sort of come from Western countries and are based on Western experiences. And you often have, you know, parachute experts, as they are known in the development field, that are just flown in to um, provide assistance or provide expertise and advisory in a country that some of them have never really set foot in before. Um, And I think there is a bit of exhaustion um, from the African side saying, you know, you're sort of coming in and trying to address problems you don't understand really well. Um, And China, um, regardless of the controversy around whether or not it was successful, um, I think is at a point where it actually could position itself as um, a successful actor that has um managed to contain the spread of the virus um uh, in its own territory. And that can, based on that experience, provide assistance and provide advisory to other countries that are going through it. Um, and this we have seen China trying to demonstrate that point um, across the globe. But particularly in Africa, it's attractive because you look at the numbers. And um, of course, with China, the numbers are not uh, I mean, there's there are questions about the numbers as well. Um, But in any case, now it looks like China has done far better than the United States and far better than um, so many European countries. Um, And, you know, this is this this doesn't fare well for the um, Western imagery that has been created over the years um, on Western democracies um, that that, uh, you know, have um, institutions um, and democracy and um, the economic ability to. Um, either insulate themselves from uh, major um, global challenges, or if those global challenges also occur, then they're able to put these instruments to use and then uh, manage them. But in the case of corona, that hasn't really happened. A lot of um, European countries didn't anticipate that you know um, that corona virus um, would come and affect their people and their economies the way it has. Um, the United States also didn't anticipate it to. To play out the way it has. So in a way, this Western imagery of either being invincible or ever ready to counter whatever comes your way has been challenged. Uh, Whereas China has always had this image of, it's not that we're invincible. um, We have seen it all from poverty to anything, you name it. It's just we have this ability to sort of um, move over, move over or like rise above these challenges and then, um, succeed. So this imagery is sort of, I, I think, appealing to a lot of countries that also see themselves in that position where they are constantly, um, uh, faced with so many challenges. Um, and I think at this point, they would rather hear from an actor who, um, could show them the numbers or could, who could show them um, the whole thing and then say, I have gone through this, and this is how I have done it. Um, so, yeah, even if you question the numbers um, for China, I, I think there is some some something appealing about how they have managed it. Um, that a lot of countries in, in Africa could draw, draw inspiration from.
2: In your article, you make a distinction between um, assistance to Africa coming in the form of equipment or PPE and financial assistance. Um, can you break down who has given what, and and in your um, in your opinion, which is the more the more effective approach?
3: So, like one of the comparisons I made, for example, was um, the support given by the European Union. Um, so, the European Union is um Africa's uh, main trading partner um is also um Africa's main um partner in development cooperation as well so um there is i mean there's a strong foundation there is um, a long standing relationship between the two regions between the two continents and if you look at the contribution that the Uni- the European Union um has offered this time around it was financial And um, so this is particularly um, in response to covid It was financial, and it is about 3.6 billion euros. And this 3.6 uh, billion euros um, is not new money, uh, meaning it was money that was um, in the budget to be dispersed to African countries. But because of corona, it has been reallocated for corona response. Um, And uh, in any case, a lot of countries could use uh, money um, at this point. So it, it's not to say that, you know, the money is useless. It is useful. Um, however, if you look at what is needed in Africa, um, what the European Union presents and what uh, African countries have said they need is, I, I mean, the comparison is great. And to, to give you the numbers, um, African countries, I think later in March, came out and said, um, in order for us to manage corona and then also um, go, go ahead and manage the economic um, side effects of this uh, pandemic, they said we would need around 100 to 250 billion USD. Um, So that is the scale um, at which the continent is sort of trying to fundraise. Um, The European Union, of course, it also has its own internal challenges at the moment. uh, But the European Union was only able to mobilize 3.6 billion euros um, that would go into their respective countries in Africa. Now, if you, are looking, if you look at the European Union, and the European Union, particularly with this new commission, has sort of advertised itself as a geopolitical commission, um, and they wanted to um, rise or play a, a role in, the, in global governance as a geopolitical actor, um, and clearly there is a competition on who uh, will be the preferred partner vis-a-vis Africa, and the competition is with China. So in a way, the amount of support that the Chinese government gave to African um, countries may not be um, way much bigger than 3.6 billion euros, but that's not the point. The point is, um, with the, in the case of the European Union, it's about giving money, and it's it's not very clear how targeted it is. You know, it does it doesn't make a geopolitical image because the the supply or the Provision uh, falls way short, um, or yeah, falls shorter than what is expected, um, both in terms of um, EU's own um, desire to be a geopolitical actor and uh, engage in a new sort of partnership with Africa. But it also falls short of what African countries um, are struggling, or African countries are um, trying to fundraise. So in a way, then the the support that the EU provides just becomes. One line in in, in in the news, whereas the support that China uh, provides becomes headline um, in the news so that that is the difference and I think China has been um, good in, in analyzing what the problem is, what would make a geopolitical statement, what would show that we have analyzed the problem and are trying to address it, uh, address it in a way that we can
0: yeah it 's interesting you talk about the big headlines and the small headlines. I regularly have conversations with both European officials and U.S. officials, and they grit their teeth. I mean, they are furious over the fact that the Chinese are getting as much attention as they're getting for their COVID-19 relief, in part because, as you talked about, 3.6 billion euros of aid. Uh, We don't know the official aid numbers coming from China, but we know that the United States and Europe together uh, spend considerably more and have spent considerably more. It just... That is anecdotal that we, we can kind of assume that. And so even though they're reallocating billions of euros and dollars from their existing public health budgets to COVID-19, it probably is still a lot more than what the Chinese are doing. Uh, one piece of research that came out from Development Reimagined, which is a Beijing-based consultancy, was that they were kind of adding up Uh, all of Jack Ma's donations in the two or three rounds of PPE uh, supplies that he's given to all African countries. And they kind of came up with about $120, $140 million. So relatively speaking, it's rather small, but the attention they're getting is disproportionately large. And in part, I think it goes to what you were saying, which is this idea of the narrative, that people like the idea of, well, we're fed up with the U.S. and Europeans. We kind of expect U.S. and Europe to be doing that because that's what you've been doing for so long. The Chinese are new. They're bringing us what we need. So they're getting a lot of attention. Talk to me a little bit about the discrepancy between the actual dollar and euro amounts that are being delivered and the perceptions, this narrative issue that you've talked about in terms of headlines and stories that African leaders seem to like.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's exactly um, how you say that. Uh, I mean, the difference between um, Europe, uh, or, so let's say the West, <clears throat> and China um, is China sort of uses its money in a, in a smart way, let's say, um, I mean, in a smart way being um, to make its geopolitical um, image or to promote its geopolitical standing. And there the question isn't necessarily how much you give, but how you give it. I think a lot of African countries have been interested in partnering with um, China and also going to China for things like debt or um, um, to borrow money from China, Um, not necessarily because the Chinese money is any different from um, Western money. It's not that, but it's how it is provided. um, I think it's very different. China, in a way, has this way of understanding what it is that um, African countries or... The rest of the world that is not part of the Western world um, is either fed up with um, or really needs. And if you look at debt, for example, or borrowing, um, I think one of the reasons why African countries like to go to China um, for money, to borrow money, is because, you know, it's not attached to um, conditionalities, right? Whereas um, aid or money lent from European sources or Western sources, broadly speaking, Um, oftentimes tend to come with uh, conditionalities. And here the reason isn't necessarily that African countries are just tired of conditionalities, but you have this um, global narrative in the world and how we um, have structured um, um, the global governance system uh, that all countries, regardless of their um, economy, regardless of their size, are supposed to be sovereign. And one country saying here's some money um i give you this money but you know you need to work on your human rights and you need to work on your x and your y and your z sort of gives the impression to the recipient that just because they are poor their sovereignty is no longer respected um, whereas you go to China, and there are some conditionalities with China as well. For example, we have to accept um the one China policy. But the one China policy itself is based on this idea of sovereignty and territorial integrity, which i mean other african countries um don't have any problems with but if china was also to tell them okay i give you this money but you know you also need to work on um your economy in this way or in that way i think there would be a problem so in a way i think china has mastered this art of understanding what um, um the non western world is so um, bitter or exhausted about um, and and how the Western world has been relating to it. And a lot of African countries want their agency to be recognized. They want their sovereignty to be recognized. They understand that their systems are not uh, perfect. And clearly, a lot of African governments also use this um, to kind of be complicit or to actually use it as a cover-up to go ahead and do whatever they want vis-a-vis their own citizens. But that withstanding, I think we need to acknowledge that um, a lot of African countries have respect for China because China chooses to see them the way they see themselves, whereas I feel the Western world sees them as, quote-unquote, the problem child. Um, And I think so many countries and people in general are also tired of that narrative or tired of that um, imagery. And China understands that and provides alternatives, um, and tells you what you want to hear. And that, you know, becomes very attractive. So again, I think with China, it's not necessarily how much they give, it's how they give. Um, And this, I I think, goes not only for their corona diplomacy, so to say, but also in how they provide assistance overall. I mean, in in their partnership with um, so many African countries, the way uh, we have seen it is they... Um, try and look at the other African country as an equal. Um, and there, because they see it as an equal, you see that sometimes this, these business deals are also, it's not like, you know, it's a perfect relationship. It's asymmetrical. Um, however, this understanding that, you know, we're negotiating this on equal terms. So if you're really good at negotiating, then go ahead and get the best out of me. And um, I think that that sort of is um, appealing to a lot of African countries um, china chooses to see them the way they would like to or the way they see themselves or they would like to be seen
2: how do you see the role of multilateral organizations in in handling you know all of this but particularly the 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 virus crisis um you know there's been so much back and forth about chinese influence in the world health organization and in the un um you know so yes i was just wondering like like where you where you see african nations fitting into that
3: I mean, with multilateral organizations, not just the financial ones, but um, the health one, like the WHO, for example. I mean, there, for example, I mean, WHO, I think, is also one of sort of the casualties in in this geopolitical competition between um, the US and China. Um, And there you see African countries also um, coming together and making a firm stance saying, we support WHO. We can have the investigation on what happened and how it was managed, how... The global response was managed, but in any case, um, you know, our we stand in solidarity with, uh, Dr. Tedros, um, and then also supporting the, the works of the World Head Organization. And I think in general, uh, for Africa and for a lot of other, um, um, regions that are developing, I think multilateralism is, very important I, I think they understand um the values of multilateralism and I think the commitment to making multilateralism work is great and even when you look at it within the continent um I think regardless of you know the difficulties that so many African countries are going through I think there has there have been positive signs on the African continent than elsewhere um that the call for solidarity I think has been better uh, or uh, more supported in the African continent than in other parts of the world, so this idea of coming together solidarity perhaps have um perhaps they resonate more in in Africa than um other places but um in general also to because the continent right now is um trying to help itself but it's also trying to position itself vis-a vis other actors in the world because africa right now the way the way um it is going, and the way it sees our, itself is as an anti, as a global player. Um, Africa is not just for Africa, but Africa is also for the globe. So, being able to contribute in global platforms. Um, so, I think there's also a lot of incentives and motivations from the African side um, to be at the global level and discuss on issues around, you know, vaccines, issues around access to funding. You see a lot of African voice or mobilization uh, to get to get uh, or to meet the interests of um, so many African countries. And I, I think that is um, also something that should be um, appreciated. And perhaps the world also has something to learn from Africa in terms of how solidarity is managed um, even during difficult times.
0: But isn't the solidarity really a sign of weakness in some respects as well? They have to come together as a group only because Ghana or Botswana or Mali or Malawi on its own does not have the power to assert itself. And it goes to this relationship with China that you talked about, that there's a perception that China treats Africa as equals. But at the end of the day, they're really not equals. One is the second largest economy in the world with enormous financial leverage, buying power, trade, access to markets, all sorts of different things. And the other is a country that, for the most part, is small. And and is not when they negotiate, they're not really coming at it from an equal point of view. Do you know what I mean? Mm. In the sense that when Ghana yeah, yeah, and no. China mm. negotiate, one has a lot of power and the other doesn't. And mm. and when we talk about, do you see what I'm saying? And and, and so and yeah, and yeah. We, you you said about the one China policy. And so long as Ghana, for example, doesn't mm. align itself with the United States on five G, doesn't talk about Xinjiang and line itself with European values on human rights, doesn't uh, you know, start supporting the, the Dalai Lama in Tibet, doesn't do a lot of different things, more than just the one China policy, uh, they're fine with China. But the moment they start asserting any kind of sovereignty that, con- that conflicts with the Chinese agenda, they might suffer the fate that Australia just went through. So for those not familiar, uh, Australia launched an inquiry or is calling for an inquiry into the origins of COVID. And a week later, all of a sudden now, China's furious and is shutting down uh, four abattoirs uh, on meat trade, is threatening to cut off its supply of students and is really leveraging its power over Australia. And so in that sense, now Australia is a, is a, is a large country with diverse trading relationships, even though it's very, very dependent on China, it will survive. Uh, Botswana, May not just for example, or South Africa certainly would be suffer, would suffer from this, so I'm just, i just want to go back to this mm. idea of equality in the relationship and and, and mm. so long as there is this kind of gap in this difference, yeah, go along with china, everything 's fine. you start crossing China, things get ugly quickly
3: mm. yeah i mean that's that's absolutely right um, I, I mean there are as- the question of asymmetry um is there with china and um Africa, if they were to negotiate as a continent um, or their respective countries in Africa. But you also have to realize that um, technically that is the case for so many African countries vis-a-vis any other Western country as well. I mean, um, China, I mean, uh, the United States and Ghana, those are not comparable. Um, So you have this asymmetry problem, I think, is a structural problem. So regardless of the Um, the other partner or the superpower being China or the United States or the partner being the European Union or the respective countries in the European Union. I think this not, not being able to negotiate on equal footing is a problem that African countries have, regardless of who's sitting on the other side. I mean, unless they are... Um, negotiating with um, other middle-income or um, um, low-income countries in, in the continent that are sort of the same um, to to their uh, economy. So in a way, this asymmetrical thing is not a problem that comes just when it is China. It's just a problem that is there. Um, so in a way, what makes because it's a problem that is there regardless of who. What then makes um, China attract attractive is not because it promises to give equal treatment or because it's uh, necessarily fair. Because, but it's because its conditions um, do not come off as patronizing in a way. Um China could take advantage of you when you are negotiating your, your trade and your economic affairs, whatever. Um, but China doesn't necessarily come to you, you know, wrangling its its fingers telling you this is how you should do it, particularly on normative. Uh, normative items or normative issues. I think that is sort of what sets so many African countries off about how Western um, countries go about their partnership with them. Like this idea of there are some norms, we make those norms, but you have to follow and we take those norms to be the best or the universal um, truths. And if you don't follow these norms, there would be consequences. China, on the other hand, is, yes, I have interest. Um, Just like you mentioned and the case that you mentioned, I, I think the European Union was also, um, sort of, um, being pressured by China and how it r- reports about its inquiry um and yeah china also uses um coercion in order to get it, to get its way um but so far in relation to uh, in terms of its relationship with african countries what you see is you would you would get it if in economic terms you are not going in a way or in political terms you are not going in a way benefits chinese interests you would definitely get it um but if you're an african country you would get it from anyone anyways um so you sort of choose the one that is appealing to you, the one that you feel is treating you as equal. Although, as you rightly said, you are not equal. The Symmetry is very clear. And then the other point is about um, solidarity and whether or not the solidarity is um, out of need in Africa. I think that is spot on. I mean, solidarity, one can argue that solidarity is not just about need, but it's also on the African philosophy, Ubuntu and things like that. You can say that um but i mean the fact that solidarity has also been demanded out of circumstances under which african countries um live under i think is evident and that um uh, that has also been evident i think throughout the years i mean it is through solidarity that so many african countries managed to liberate themselves from um colo- the uh, colonial powers and it is also through solidarity that um, you know they managed to uh, put together the African Union and um, try to put themselves in, 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 um, in the world or in global governance to say something together. It has its challenges, you know trying to pull together 54 55 African countries and have common, common positions on um, issues that affect them very differently. But as you say, because the need is there, um, I think they do stick together regardless of the, the circumstances.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at vitschinaafrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars.
2: Lidette picking up on that on the the theme of solidarity, how much damage do you think has been done to this narrative of Africa-China solidarity in um, via the the crisis in Guangzhou of the the, the mistreatment and discrimination against Africans in Guangzhou?
3: Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's actually a, a very sad situation. I, I think there, my observation has been that um, this definitely tarnishes the image um, of China as this, you know, southern partner um, that does things differently um, and uh, treats Africans with dignity and respect. I, I think that has, uh, really, for a lot of Africans um, on the continent, that has really um, that is an image that has been tarnished. Now there are so many questions around that. Um, my concern and my observation though is if there is like sort of a dissonance between what the um, African citizenry so to say um what Africans as as people as citizens are saying versus um what their governments are saying. Um, and we have seen um so many African uh, countries speaking out against what's happening um and then also summoning, Uh, Chinese ambassadors in their respective countries and having a discussion on them. We've also seen the African Union um, speaking out against this situation, but we haven't really seen anything concrete in terms of um, action, diplomatic action on China for its inability to contain this, for its inability to explain what's what's happening there. Um, And and so perhaps this is one of those things where you have... um, the level of urgency that is felt in the eyes of um, Africans on the continent, and the level of urgency um, that is felt at the level of the leadership, perhaps there's there's some gap there.
0: I think it's a pretty huge gap, actually. It looks, I mean, it's it's an enormous gap that that is getting wider. It seems like in that sense, and it goes a little bit to what you were saying in terms of the the popularity of the Chinese with Africa's governing class uh, as is certainly in the coronavirus era. It remains strong and is probably getting stronger because the Chinese are providing goods and services that these politicians need. At the same time, the perceptions among the civil society have been tarnished by issues of what happened in Guangzhou, racism, discrimination, and also this ongoing issue of debt relief. Um, I'd like to kind of close up our conversation just by looking forward. We're in a very contentious period of history, both we don't know where COVID-19 is going to go. We also don't know how the US-China relationship may impact what's going to happen on the continent. And we also don't know about the debt relief and how that's going to play out in terms of whether or not African countries will have enough money to pay both for their, their continued debt relief, uh, their debt payments, and for COVID-19 public health needs. At this point, it doesn't look like they'll be able to. Right now, between now and the end of the year, African governments owe somewhere around $50 billion in debt repayment. <laughs> and at the same time, they've only allocated around $36, $37 billion for COVID-19. So we have all of those things that are on uh, on the agenda when you look out and you're trying to kind of piece all of this together, what do you see in the next three to six months?
3: I mean, the next uh, three to six months uh, for um, Africa as a continent under the African Union, I think is, there's going to be a lot of effort in trying to solve this debt problem, because I think that is um, indeed at the forefront of what the continent together is trying to resolve at the moment. And um uh, the African Union has also uh, appointed envoys um, that could sort of negotiate what to do with this debt and then also fundraise for it. Um, I think there's um, so much to be said about where this debt conversation um comes from and what also Africa wants to achieve vis-a-vis its debt issue, um, in general. Um, but you were absolutely right. I mean, the, the need, um, and mind you, it's not only just to respond to the health crisis, but it's also to respond to the economic impacts of the, the crises. And so many countries in, in, um, in Europe, but also the United States are trying to, um, um, organize, um, recovery packages, which a lot of African countries may not be able to do adequately. So this will have a devastating economic impact on the continent. Um, and unless there is a, a global mobilization to address not only the health concerns, but also the economic um, aspects, um, this would be devastating. Um, so in a way, you also have to see if Africa as a continent has economic value or to what extent it is um it has ties, to what extent it, it matters in global value chains, to what extent it matters in um global financial flow, and to what extent this um sort of uh, provides as a as a compelling reason um for uh, uh the rest of the world to come um together and support the continent. But I mean the one thing that needs to be appreciated I think is the fact that the continent itself is You know, trying to mobilize um, help from uh, within it uh, by also um, putting the private sector together and trying to mobilize funds there, but also coming together, putting envoys and saying, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to have our strategy on how we're going to go about it, whether or not they would meet it to something else. But the fact that you see African agency clearly um, articulated there, I, I think is a positive development.
0: The article is Testing the Relationship, China's Corona Diplomacy in Africa. It was written by Ledet Tedesi, who's a policy officer in the Security and Resilience Program at the European Center for Development Policy Management in Brussels. Ledet, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. It was fascinating to hear your insights.
3: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that?
3: Um, well, I have Twitter, so they can reach me at Twitter. And my handle is Ledet's. And then they can also subscribe to the ECDPM newsletter. um, So they can go to ecdpm.org and subscribe to our materials.
0: Fantastic. We'll put links to both the ECDPM website a newsletter link as well as to your Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Eric and Kobus.
0: Kobus, when I was listening to LaDette, I was trying to picture in my mind what my contacts and sources and friends who work in the US policy circles and also in Brussels and in European governments and i can hear them gnashing their teeth and grinding their teeth with frustration to to hear that this the power of the narrative that again this idea that Europe and the United States are giving more, are doing more, are on the ground. AFRICOM is delivering COVID-19 you know, supplies, but they're not getting credit for it. PEPFAR money is being redeployed in South Africa, but they're not getting the credit for it. Jack Mon his planes fly in, and they get all the headlines for it. And, and it goes to this, this powerful narrative that Ledette touched into so many different times in our conversation that it really isn't necessarily about the substance of it. The optics and the stories behind the donations matter a lot. In this sense, this idea of the U.S. and European history of being overbearing to countries in places like Africa is it seems to be you know a filter that all of this is seen through, and it's it's very powerful. It's very very powerful, and I think she channeled it very well in that sense.
2: Yeah, like, as I was listening to it, I'm, I was, you know, just just being immersed in, an, in the African side of this, um, of this conversation of like, yep, 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 this is what people are saying. <laughs> it's exactly what people are saying. Um, and, you know, kind of, I, I can see it. Playing as very unfair from a Western perspective, but you know, it's, you know, it's as she, as she pointed out, you know, African countries are weak no matter who they speak with. You know, they're always weak in, in, in relation to external partners, whether those external partners are multilateral organizations or China or the US. Africa is always going to be the weaker partner. And then, how the optics of how that weakness is is articulated and, and used and, you know, kind of um, how, how it comes up in the way that the relationship is run, that that counts for a lot. Um, and I think I agree with
0: her. I think China knows how to play that game. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit here and get your take on some of the politics of the week that have been going on. Uh, One of the key events at the World Health Assembly meeting, uh, where the World Health Organization got in, uh, gets together, is that all African countries under the banner of the, and I'm quoting here, the African group and its member states, are now part of a group of 110 countries who signed a World Health Organization draft resolution on Monday that calls for an inquiry into the origin of COVID-19. That feels like a very risky political move in one sense. And I'd like to get your take on it simply because that is aligning themselves with the Australian, UK, and US initiative to kind of push the World Health Organization to identify Wuhan as the origin of the virus. Now, we saw in Australia what happened when they started pushing it, and the Chinese reacted very, very strong. Zhao Lijian, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman, uh, was unequivocal in saying he doesn't like this at all. What is the political calculation that you think African countries are making by signing on with this draft draft resolution? I'd like to get your take, and then I'd like to share a few thoughts on my side
2: this is very interesting i was surprised to see to see it happening um and um, i also i i was wondering what the the kind of strategic thinking was behind it and then also i was wondering um whether they're making a distinction between between simply investigating the origins of of the outbreak as a way to you know to learn about it and to, as a way to to see uh you know kind of how to deal with future pandemics and to which extent that also then that that that, that support for that investigation also is a vote of support for the the narrative that China has to do, has to um, give some kind of reparation for it, you know, which is which is something that we've seen coming out of a lot of Western governments. And I wasn't sure, um, you know, kind of where the Africans landed on that on that issue. Like, what do you think? Well, there's two ways this can go. One
0: is that this can can be very, very risky, and then they can, you know, the United Nations and others can push the UN and push the World Health Organization to really come down and say, yes, Wuhan was the origin of it. China's responsible, China mishandled this, China's accountable, and Africa is part of that, and that would put a strain on the relationship. The other side of it is that this is a UN function. And as you and I both know, the UN is not the most hard-hitting organization. The United Nations is subject to the will of its members, particularly a member who is a permanent member of the Security Council. China has a lot of power inside the UN. This could be a watered-down, and I'm putting air quotes here that you can't see on an audio podcast, investigation. It drags it out. It waters it down. It pushes it. it and at the end of the day, the African countries... Win on, they, it's a win-win for them. One, they show some autonomy from Beijing by aligning themselves with Australia, the United States, the West, and saying, you know what? We're going to hold China accountable. They also have a message back to their own people to say, we signed up for this draft resolution to hold China accountable. Whether something happens or not may or may not be part of the point of all this. And the second part is that they then also, because nothing comes out of it, no harm, no foul, the China-Africa relationship just kind of moves on. If this was an independent third-party investigation that was more hard-hitting, I would say, wow, that's a lot riskier. Other, two other points to kind of mention here is interesting that they went under the title of the African group and its member states. That way there's plausible deniability to say if any one country was like, you know, China comes and bullies them. They say, no, 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 I was just part of a bigger group, wasn't me. But interesting that Djibouti and Tunisia were mentioned separately from the African group and its member states. I don't understand that. Maybe somebody can explain to me why those two were, were broken out on the list of countries in the, the draft resolution. Do you have any ideas why Djibouti and Tunisia would have been separate from the African group? Absolutely no idea, unfortunately. Okay, yeah, that that was a puzzling thing to me. So why not put all of them under? And that might reveal some differences in opinion, even on the African side. Obviously, there are 55 countries that are part of the African group, So not all we'll we'll see. But it does feel a little bit like a risky move in one sense, particularly now as we're in the debt relief negotiations. And let's just end our our discussion today on a debt relief update. It's looking increasingly likely that China will not cancel much or any of its $150 billion of debt. In Africa, it's going to reschedule it. Deborah Braudigam gave an interview to Bloomberg uh, yet again, kind of saying this, we don't know much because it's coming out of Beijing. So everybody's speculating right now. Uh, at the end of the day, the G20 a solution which prevents countries from taking on new debts or issuing new bonds is falling flat because countries like Kenya are now encountering massive budget deficits and they need to raise money somehow. So if they can't go out onto the bond market, can't take another concessional loan from somebody to cover their budget deficit, they won't then qualify for the G20 money uh, on debt relief. That's an interesting point there. The Chinese have not said where they stand on that. Also this week, we got an update from a, a working group of, the, of private creditors who said that they too do not believe in a blanket solution for debt relief in Africa. They prefer to negotiate country by country. So amidst the corona diplomacy, amidst all what's going on with the World Health Organization, Cobus, this debt relief issue now has been the top story for all of us on our newsletter every day. Where do we stand right now? Because I've been arguing in the newsletter that time is running out. Ethiopia was downgraded by Moody's. Kenya has got a warning from Moody's. South Africa, your economy has been downgraded by Moody's. Uh, Zambia is on the verge of default on its Eurobond debt, about $3 billion of that debt, according to Africa Confidential. Uh, it feels like the abyss that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, kind of warned about back in March is now actually in sight. That's my take on it. What's your take?
2: Yeah, I feel very similar. Similarly, um, I was appalled that the the you know the private lenders you know weren't willing to actually work um, with Uneca and other people to you know kind of to to work out uh, you know a, a pause um, in repayments and, and wanting to to pursue it case by case it's just you know how long will it take to do it to so many countries um and yeah i i was really i was really kind of upset by that and you know kind of i think it's a it's a terrible decision that will like reflect on them historically i don't think they care i mean i think i don't
0: think they care I don't think they care if you don't like them, and you think. But they're...
2: this is but this is exactly what this is exactly um, what Liedet was saying. Is you know, kind of is is you know, many many actors in the West both don't care about Africa and want to have a continual bully pull, but to lecture Africa at the same time, which is which is the way that that a lot of African countries see the West. So so this this plays if we're talking narratives, this plays into the narrative. Yeah, and that's what
0: that's that's what I wrote about this week as well in in the newsletter in the introduction one of our editions, which was this idea that if you're in an African finance ministry and you watch the blazing speed, the incredible speed that the United States Congress, which cannot pass a ham sandwich, much less a law, was able to pass $4 trillion of relief. Germany, $800 billion. I mean, the relief packages that have been passed by governments that are historically dysfunctional and don't move very fast has been breathtaking. And yet. The 150 billion dollars that Ledette talked about for COVID relief for Africa, or the 100 billion dollars of debt relief money that African countries have been asking for, uh, can't be passed. I mean, and we're talking 100 billion dollars today when we're in trillion dollar relief budgets is pennies on the dollar. But it just it, it, there's where there's no will, there's no way, and it just doesn't. It really does not feel like there's a a will on the part of the Chinese to cancel some of the debt. They're not going to cancel their debt. The G20 uh, is is quite inflexible. And the money the G20 is talking about is in the tens of billions. That ain't going to cover much either. And then at the end of the day, uh, the private creditors, they've made it pretty clear that they do want their money back.
2: Yeah, you know, it's... It's it really, ugh. Um, and, you know, keep in mind that most African countries are not asking for debt, for debt cancellation, they're asking for, for repackaging um, and and rescheduling, um, you know, and you're talking about like, a, like possibly what, a year or two year pause on repayments, um, you know, and, and simply, simply, uh, you know, a, a, a commitment to them not being downgraded in the process, you know, it's just, I don't know, like, a, you know, you know, I, I think, again, you know, kind of, I think, covid 19 nothing if not revealing you know kind of and and one of the things that it reveals i think at the moment is is the 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 kind of position of the west in the world you know kind of it's 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 way that it, it's weight in the world um the way that it distorts the everything around it um yeah you know kind of not not to rant but like i think it's it really is appalling On that depressing note, we are going to leave you with an idea that
0: all of this is what we cover every single day. And what we're doing on our newsletter is capturing the conversations. We're capturing what the big news articles are, what the big thinkers of the day are saying, what the Twitter conversations are, and so much is happening on Twitter. I know a lot of people kind of frown on Twitter, but when you see ministries now communicating, ambassadors, embassies, all communicating on Twitter, uh, keeping on top of all that is really, really hard. Uh, I spend about eight to nine hours a day going through everything, finding the best YouTube videos, finding what you know people like Professor Carlos Oya from SOAS who did a very short video interview this week on what, uh, how African countries can better manage their labor negotiations with the Chinese and then kind of extracted that out. And in two or three minutes, you can just scan through this email. We'd love to have you part of our reader community. Uh, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. If you'd like to reach out directly to Kobus and I, it's one of the things that we, we take great pride in and our accessibility to our, our listeners. Don't hesitate to email us. Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com, or you can reach me, Eric, E-R-I-C, uh, not K, E-R-I-C, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We love to hear from you. Tell us what you think of the topics. If you've got questions about the newsletter, anything, we just love to, to chat with our listeners. So uh, don't 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 feel shy whatsoever. Uh, listen, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, for Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for
1: listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Quobus at Studinsky or Eric at EOLander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.